Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with David Kahn, founding director of David Kahn Architects. I used to work at DKA and was drawn to the practice's eccentricity and rigor. From a boat-shaped room perched atop a festival hall, to an apartment that becomes a vessel for urban fragments, to an amoebic college quadrangle clad in diamond-shaped stone, Kahn's work is delightfully weird and always insisting on new possibilities. I met with David in July at his office in Camden Town, where we talked about, among other things, the role of entrepreneurship in teaching, Khan's tendency to reference and recombine memorable elements of classic buildings, and his fascination with the miniature and the larger world that small spaces can bring us to. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. start off by asking you a personal question. Okay. Um, are you a hedgehog or are you a fox? And I guess as you answer it, could you help me kind of explain where that question comes from and what it means to you? Okay. So I think I'm a fox at the moment. Um, I say at the moment because I suppose even a fox might think that they're not always going to be a fox. Um, and well, that came about through this text I read by Isaiah Berlin that uh, described these two types of creativity. And I came across it because it's referenced in Collage City by Colin Rowe and Fred Curter. Essentially, these two different types of creativity are um, one, um, and it's all based on this uh, poem by Archilochus that goes... Um, while the fox knows many things, the hedgehog knows one big thing. And this idea that creativity might be in the service of one singular idea and everything that one does tends towards the kind of description and realisation of one central concept. That's the hedgehog. Um, the fox, on the other hand, um, sees... Uh, a valid creative process involving many parallel strands of exploration which may occasionally coalesce in something that has the coherence that a, a hedgehog might aspire to but otherwise is entirely legitimate as an ongoing exploration. And I guess the reason that I think that I'm a fox now and wouldn't actually be for always is that probably my 
feeling when we when we use this story as the basis for an exhibition, which is the first public showing of our work, uh, which is an exhibition at London Metropolitan University. Um, it was a feeling like perhaps fox-like thinking is um, needed in a context where perhaps the feeling was that there was more. There was more examples of architects promoting hedgehog ways of practicing and teach teaching. Mm. I guess it's kind of like the equivalent of the auteur film director or something, or um, the architect with a brand, the star architect. Yes, I, I guess. I guess you know a caric caricatured version of modernism. Um, uh, you know, the great canon of modernism might be quite hedgehog in its agenda, and I suppose the alter alternative traditions of modernism may have been more fox-like, and certainly, um, I suppose, yeah, iconic architecture, the role of the media tends to validate more singular ways of communicating and rationalising projects. Mm. Um, yeah, it's interesting the the fox and hedgehog analogy, um, because in identifying as a foxy thinker, um, what you're kind of allowing yourself to do is at at once have a kind of unified expression. Mm -hmm. um, I am a fox. This yeah. practice yeah. is uh, a practice that's interested in disparate ideas and the possibility of. Um, multiple approaches being valid simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And so in taking that position, you kind of allow yourself at once this unified identity and then this kind of disparate or multiple identity. I think that's, to me, that's really intriguing. And I kind of want to step from like um, this permission that you've granted yourself in taking on that approach to one particular concept that to me is a kind of hedgehog yeah. concept but then all of a sudden like folds back out on itself to become an everything concept and that's the hetero the idea of heterotopia yeah um so for me if there was a unifying um concept or or uh, organizing principle for the practice it might be this idea of heterotopia mm -hmm. um which was first articulated in a project i think of the same name yes um back in was it 2010 yes so um the art space of the future was a competition run by the it was an open competition run by the arts council yeah in, in a way maybe that project summarized our thinking at that moment and um it was based on this um Foucault, Foucault essay of other spaces that I'd first read as a student you know, 10 years before and um, you know this very appealing set of ideas the first that um, that in the world that we live in there are still these kind of um, valences of space like space that are still have degrees of Sacrality and other ones that are you know, degrees of profanity, you know, 
that they're profane or sacred and and this is some, this is kind of a hangover from the Middle Ages. And you kind of feel it when you walk into, I suppose most obviously a church, but maybe you walk into a park or into a theatre or... Um, and there's this idea that these spaces are kind of mirror spaces. They're not, not part of the everyday of, I guess, living and working. They are spaces that people go to to see their world somehow represented for them. So, I mean, I suppose quite obviously the theatre represents the world. But also the the graveyard does, and um, and this idea that these spaces have this like incredible potency, and uh, that you become somehow self-aware in ways that perhaps weren't evident in the everyday in these places, and it, it to me. Um, they feel very concrete and they feel like spaces that we can talk about and that we have access to, but at the same time they are kind of uh, utopias. Mm. They're, they're, they're spaces that one um, dreams of. And Foucault makes the point that these are the moments where utopias are realised. They are concrete. Um, and so in a way they are the kind of attempt to make real that which you kind of aspire to intellectually. And I, I, I mean, I kind of like the idea that you, you kind of said that, that, um, that as a kind of model for the practice. It, it certainly is a, it's a, a recurring theme that probably a lot of our projects are trying to establish some, some of that characteristic as a kind of moment of potential reflection of everyday life. Mm. I wondered if we could talk a bit about um, how in the first place thinkers like Foucault or Zai Berlin mm. make their way into an architecture practice. Um, I know that you've described your education as being akin to a liberal arts education, although mm. it was in architecture school. Yeah. I'm just curious like what, um, what that was actually like and what kind of ideas you were brushing up against and what kind of um, possibilities you were exposed to in terms of this intersection between uh, intellectual life and, and, and the life of uh, an architect and of practice. We should just say that, sorry, oh, sorry. you were uh, studying your Bachelor's of Architecture at Cambridge in yeah. the early 90s. And then you won a Fulbright scholarship and you studied in Columbia for a year uh, yeah. from 95 to 96. Yeah. And then were you back at Cambridge for your yeah. master's? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at Cambridge, what was interesting was a lot of the studio staff were also teaching history theory. And it's, it's, I guess it's less and less common, or maybe that moment at Cambridge was unusual. And so one, you know, one couldn't avoid understanding the history of architecture and theoretical positions as they've been kind of presented within architectural history is intrinsic to a design process. And you, ha you know, it's important to situate design within 
this framework. And that ended up being a, a challenge and a pleasure that, that one, that there, that there would be. I also, I, I mean, I suppose there's a genuine excitement in reading texts and feeling like, oh, this, this actually changes what I'm going to do in studio. And that this was a, a dialogue. It's interesting the way that in describing your relationship to theory, uh, you're talking about um, how you situate yourself mm. um, in, in the context of other people's ideas. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, it's, it's true, I guess, in architecture as well, in terms of like how one situates oneself in the presence of other architects uh, living and dead. Um, and I feel like especially, you know, having, having worked here too, um, there is a quite acute awareness of, of the canon of architecture um, and the possibility of um, achieving a place within it. Right. <laughs> and I know it sounds kind of highfalutin and... Um, pretentious, but at the same time, we all kind of think like that to some extent. Except the way um, you might go about thinking about that relationship is different because there's a lot more homage and reference and this kind of conscious uh, absorption of other architects' styles or expressions or formal languages to the point where it feels almost like this kind of magpie Mm -hmm. um, agglomeration mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of um, of familiar but slightly slightly estranged voices, mm -hmm. um, and I think in particular one architect that um, seems to make his presence known again and again in your work is James Sterling, right? And so, why why do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I suppose as you were talking, I mean, it's like a question of um, there being a canon, and this you know, does one want to be part of a canon, or one's work is justified by um, its relationship to others. I, I suppose it made me realise that that said, there isn't a a figure, a particular individual architect that is a kind of benchmark or one body of work. I think probably it comes about through, I mean, most of the, most of the schemes in the office do develop around um, very local concerns to the project about, I mean, quite, quite conventional uh, issues around massing, around, around light, around um, density on the site. A lot of them are very urban, actually. Um, but in that process, um, I suppose the magpie dimension is the realisation of all the preceding versions of what you're doing. And so... I guess there's both the historic pleasure in pouring over, um, I guess mostly publications and and a lot of travelling to see buildings, and 
the, then the kind of the pleasure of remembering them as these seemingly quite pragmatic issues are being laid out. So, you know, how does one distribute the programme? And then you begin to find that there are programmatic relationships that remind you of um, other buildings. And maybe if there is a connection to Stirling, it is... I'd like to think, in the first instance, less Stirling's output, um, although, I mean, it's very obvious to see where we do reference that, but it starts with, I think, what I've, I've understood to be something of Stirling's process. Um, and I, I guess an example of that was there's this fantastic exhibition at the RIBA of um, the Stirling versus Meese proposals for number one poultry. And there was this idea there was a description of how the office worked and I don't know how many people it was, maybe it was like three, four, five people are working on different fragments of the building and you know, Sterling is having a conversation with each of them and there is a kind of autonomy to that fragment that there's an authorship that the person in the office um, brings, that there is this kind of design exercise that uh, Sterling is able to contribute to, um, but it is... Um, its autonomy is that it can be perfected by that conversation. And then across the room, there's someone else busying away at another exercise that maybe has a whole set of different precedents, that has a whole kind of duration that's different, a set of tools that are different, and that, um, the, that Sterling, as well as, you know, being part of the conversation in each case is therefore the person that kind of is relate, relaying to the others some sense of the parts mm. and that gradually this kind of um, organism evolves and I completely identify with that as a process or I also find that you know, the idea of a process like that very pleasurable and and maybe a lot of a lot of the work is driven by a kind of pleasure seeking mm-hmm. that that the conversations the kind of that sense of things things emerging in front of you and uh, you know, synapses firing with different memories of bits of architecture and, and maybe the why are these bits of architecture from kind of known architects? I guess it's partly because that's just, I guess, how kind of media works. It just, it, it kind of offers you this kind of narrow version of the world and that becomes a kind of source book. Mm. Um, but through that source book, there is a kind of validity given to the examples. And so one's also trying to test one's own kind of form-making or um, response to situations against what you hope to be, you know, a pretty sound set of alternatives. And in that kind of negotiation between, well, X did this and Y did that, and this kind of worked in the 30s and this kind of worked in the 60s, this failed in the 70s, Mm. you know, you might then 
negotiate a, an outcome that feels completely appropriate to now, that, that has been thoroughly tested, and therefore you hope will will perform, and you know. It's interesting, like, thinking about performance, not only in terms of um, maybe the relationship of programs or um, the buildup of materials, but also like cultural performance. Mm. Um, because again, like if we're looking at and measuring ourselves up to architects of the so-called canon, mm. then there is, I guess you could kind of say like an infallibility there. If we start to bring them into our work, mm -hmm. um, and I, I guess what I mean by that is like, let's talk about specific examples, Cara Avenia, yeah. project uh, you designed in Spain, yeah. um, which is a kind of bachelor pad, essentially. That's a, yeah, that's a, it's a two, <laughs> well, it was for two families. Uh -huh. Okay. So, I mean, it was for two brothers, both of whom have children. Um, but you're right, it's but more, me, more of a pied-a-terre. I want to yeah, say, yeah, okay, yeah. so a pied-a-terre. Yeah. Uh, uh, a kind of apartment for two brothers. Yeah. Um, in that project, for example, uh, you've taken a nearby building yeah. by a well-known architect, Kaderch. Yeah. Yeah. The building is Barceloneta. Yeah. And you've just, you've shrunk it down yeah. and you've put it in yeah. your, your building. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, there was a competition for the Victoria and Albert Museum members room. Yeah. Um, where there's like a miniature Joseph Paxton uh, Crystal Palace yeah. uh, tucked away at the back of yeah. the scheme. Yeah. Um, there are other examples of this as well where there's this kind of surreal, uncanny um, cannibalism yeah. of other built projects yeah. that make their appearance in, in your projects. Yeah. And it almost feels like... Um, you're taking on this role of a collector in a way. I mean, I, I mean, think thinking about the Caravinia scheme, and if I remember the design process, I mean that this tower. It wasn't the interest in Kodak that led to the tower's arrival. It was so this this space of this apartment. One of the things that's unusual about it is it's about you know five meters tall, so really extraordinary volume, very dramatic, very tall windows out onto the street, and the client came to us saying, you know, uh, we want more bedrooms. It was a very very prosaic brief, and they said we've been to an architect. They've built a mezzanine floor throughout the apartment. You know, and they're maxing out on the, the floor area. Um, but we're worried that maybe this is not really um, keeping the character of the apartment. I mean, of course it wouldn't, it would just utterly destroy it. And so we, we needed to deliver some, something of the program that they wanted, you know, practically and to kind of, um, that was a value that they wanted out of the project. But we also knew that 
the thing that was remarkable about this space was its volume and um, that this was something that we would need to keep intact to preserve what, what was good about what was there. So that meant that in order to do that, you'd have to make some kind of structure that had all this program in it that stood within the building. So there were models that we made that were basically this space emerging. And at some point, I, you know, the conversation went, well, what does it look like? And, or not even, maybe not even what it looked like. It was like, how do we introduce this object into this space in a way that isn't bombastic, that doesn't feel um, like it is a, it is an object, a kind of bed box, a kind of, a, you know, a version of loft living, um, of which there are just so many examples and a complete banal recent history. So we began to kind of facet the volume so that it seemed to respond to how you came into the space and to create um, spaces around it so that it wasn't an object, it was now like an urban um, space-making device. And gradually, as you're fasting it away, there's this kind of like, well, this is kind of like, we should look at the work of Kodak. And then, and then there's this kind of realization that actually, well, this thing might be a bit like the uh, Barcelona And I remember this moment where, <laughs> kind of losing patience with this model, we were like, God, just, just, Make it the Barcelona, you know, just like, just shrink it. And I mean, this is a conversation with a colleague. It's like, just, just shrink it down and put it in, you know, <laughs> and it'll be fine. And maybe the tendency towards this kind of um, actually then literally just borrowing a bit of architecture is because it lends, it achieved a kind of directness that any lesser position on that journey um, didn't achieve. And that somehow at the moment of it being actually a bit of Barcelona, it then had this transformative effect on the project, which was, okay, now the project, the apartment is the city, this is a tower, you can be in the tower, which renders the space in front of the tower civic, public. The kind of implied uh, program of the apartment outside of the tower is now transformed. And it's only the fact of this being recognisable as a tower. And then even if it's recognisable as a tower from Barcelona, this suddenly this kind of, and I mean, you talk about this heterotopian vision, Suddenly you walk into it, it's not, it's, not, it's not an apartment anymore. It's like a kind of like miniature city theatre scape. And you're then kind of invited to perform the role of a visitor to this world. And I guess the, the hope was that maybe who you are in that apartment is... Um, different to who you might be in any other space and that that is its function. Its function is to transform your experience of Barcelona which perhaps was 
actually the unspoken part of the brief that we then you know, gave the client. Mm. It's like, you get your bedrooms, but in fact, every time you go here, you will open the door and feel in this kind of strange version of the city. And this, like, the pleasure of being in Barcelona will be there for the taking. There's something so theatrical about the way you're describing that particular interior, but I guess that description kind of applies to a lot of the the work you've done. Mm -hmm. um, and this interest in like miniaturization mm -hmm. or in tiny things and tiny spaces mm -hmm. um, is something I want to hone in on a bit. Yeah. So there's this essay We've already mentioned two essays. We might as well talk about a third um, by the architecture historian and theorist John Summerson. Mm. Uh, is it called Heavenly Mansions or yeah. is that the book name? No, no, it's the essay. So yeah. it's the book and, and the essay in the book called yeah. Heavenly Mansions. Yeah. Instead of me trying to describe it, I think it's probably better that you do. But um, I've kind of done the run up to it. Yeah, so um, this is about the, like the child making a house under a table. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. but then um, expanded to understand a certain era of architecture. Is it the Gothic yeah. period? Yeah, so it's a kind of revisionist essay. It's looking at um, the way 19th century engineers and architects equipped with new materials and the ability to make bigger spans and a whole new type of urban buildings like railway stations and these kind of huge infrastructural projects um, you know looked for an appropriate language and I, and to what degree this kind of coincided with um, kind of society uh, being you know, very drawn to you know, neo-Gothic ideology and so that you know, the use of Gothic architecture kind of came to be you know, wrapping these huge infrastructural projects, you know, like King's Cross or something. Um, and, um, you know, Summerson was pointing out like this may be, you know, these may be some of the biggest Gothic, uh, neo-Gothic structures around, but They've also kind of stripped, in his view, um, the style of a whole other dimension that he then goes on to um, describe. 
which is that maybe Gothic architecture starts from a house for um, a figure, uh, and that figure would be a saint or a, um, a, kind of a holy presence, and that this little house one can identify with as um, a monlooker, um, and the architecture is made by agglomerating you know, rows upon rows upon rows of these little houses, and then you know he shows you, he, you know, the book shows images of the you know, the entrance to Chartres Cathedral, and the, you know it, it's just so very obvious in the examples that that the building is just just like you know piles of these little shrines, and. Again, I mean, it, it, you know, the pleasure in reading this, this kind of like, oh, you know, wow, you know. Uh, it's such a beautiful idea. And I think it also makes one appreciate that a version of Gothic is that it is a very social architecture. It is a, an architecture about the, the, the kind of the grand house of the many and that it very directly represents this. And so I, I, I felt that Summerson gave, gives his readers a, a kind of very beautiful and very useful idea with which to kind of appreciate Gothic architecture. And he then connects it to, I guess, a much more contemporary view, uh, kind of the kind of psychology of the child, which is that um, you know, the building of houses underneath tables. And I mean, that was certainly something that I did loads of, I, you know, just spent a lot of time um, with friends making little spaces. Mm. And I, I kind of, I mean, actually through my studies, my, 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 my thesis on undergraduate was on a, on a nursery school by Tarani, uh, there's Asilo Santalia in Como. And um, I've often been drawn to um, architectures that are sp specifically for children. Um, I mean, what's amazing about this Asilo is like, everything is beautifully reproduced for a child's scale. It's not, um, it's, in, it's, it's, it's neither patronizing, um, nor is it um, somehow uh, a kind of image of what would be like a suitable environment for a child. It's literally a kind of scaled environment for a child with like mm. all the right sized niches and little spaces for groups of kids to kind of hang out. And it still looks like a very purist, modernist architecture, but the scale is just so exquisite. And I kind of feel like like we all need this, like we all need this all the time. We need spaces that are, you can sit with a couple of other people and enjoy a meal or a drink. And I think there is this tendency, uh, you know, the contemporary economies of um, architectural production inevitably tend towards the shed, you know, 
the shed is this kind of panacea. Everything can be a shed. You know, you just look at education, architecture, religious architecture, like, um, you know, this kind of uh, issue that Somerset identifies in the 19th century. It's not like it kind of went away. It's just like that was the beginning of something that, you know, we can now build these vast, expansive, spanning structures. And, you know, I mean, there is this kind of idea like they're good for everything, but in fact, they rob everyone of all of these other spaces that allow you to be sociable in many more ways. And that, that feels like the, the irony of giving people loads of space and none of it allows you to, to be with other people in anything other than the vastest of limited experiences I find it yeah I find it very and like, so I guess this these kind of this, this kind of interest in small spaces just does pervade our work yeah mm-hmm. I kind of want to follow up on that but there's also more questions and I think that that's a nice break for another question okay but I do have to say that it, it did feel like um, or in some of the projects it does feel like um, what's being offered is uh, in a sense, a kind of coral reef yeah, with yeah. all kinds of recesses and nooks and yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, nice. nooks and crannies and I mean banquettes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, banquettes and edicules. Yeah, this yeah, word yeah. I learned in that essay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, an edicule is kind of like a little tiny shrine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or a little kind of recess almost yeah, yeah, in a yeah. wall. Yeah. Uh, that houses. Um, a deity yeah or a pair of keys yeah. <laughs> um and it's shaped like a house and in one of your projects it's shaped like the house in which it's placed yeah and there's a kind of meta quality to that uh, that's so exciting because um all of a sudden as a user you can't really scale yourself there's a kind of flickering of like uh, ambiguity or confusion about where you actually stand mm-hmm. when you're using the space, whether it's the space of the edicule or the space of the of the space underneath the roof, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much else I think to explore with that or talk about with that, uh, talk about with you on that subject. Uh, Cosmati tiles were another mm-hmm. uh, area of interest of yours that again had a lot to do with kind of um, shrinking the cosmos mm-hmm. into into a patterned surface on a floor. Yes. Um, but why don't we just kind of let that okay. sit? Yeah. yeah. And um, I want to move on now and talk about um, the fact that a lot of the work you do um, isn't necessarily independent. And in fact, um, apart from or in addition to being inspired by other architects' work, and liberally deploying, I think, these forms that exist in the world. Uh, you work a lot with artists too. Mm. And I just wonder, like, has that always been a methodology for you or a necessity to have these outside voices uh, within the realm of art uh, brought into a project? I think it happened kind of by chance or certainly organically in that I mean, I, 
I did spend a bit of time at art school. I, um, I, I suppose I enjoy going to galleries a lot. That's probably one of my you know, favorite weekend things to do. Um, but I don't know that that necessarily made it clear that collaboration would be so important. And um, I think one of the first projects we did as, as a practice was um, this kind of temporary restaurant at the Royal Academy with Bistrotech. And I'd kind of met Bistrotech because I cold called them and I think they'd done a pop-up restaurant and I, I was teaching a unit about restaurant design. And again, that was deliberately because I felt most, most architects didn't seem that interested in doing like interiors for restaurants. That would be kind of interior design and they would kind of feel a bit like, well, architects do the structural stuff. And I found this, well, on one hand, quite slightly macho and snobbish. And on the other hand, like, well, well there's, a, there's an opportunity, you know. If you're the architect that can do restaurant interiors, well then that, that's, if, if everyone else doesn't want to do it, that's great. <laughs> um, and so I invited uh, Pablo Flack and David Waddington to come and speak to my students about what they were doing. And These are two restaurateurs. Yeah, so they, they're the restaurateurs that still run Bistro Tech. Um, they, yeah, they were very generous. They came and spoke to the students. They were really inspiring. Um, and I guess they talked a lot about um, um, how they work and that they worked with different you know, different creative people to make their restaurants. And I guess the way they worked was a bit like how I wanted the teaching to run. I just invited more, you know, just kept inviting people that I felt were doing something interesting to talk to the students. And, you know, we invited Herman Czech and there was this kind of fantastic moment where kind of Herman Czech and Bistro Tech are kind of rubbing shoulders and... Um, so Herman Czech is a famous, is he a Viennese architect? Yeah, so he's a Viennese architect who... With many best, celebrated interiors. Yeah, so he's, he's best known for his restaurants, which are also often very small. <laughs> um, and, and I think they... You know, one day they said, well, look, you know, we've got this opportunity to do a restaurant. Would you like to be involved? And... Um, you know, I couldn't believe my luck. Was, and and uh, but there was, you know, we were doing the kind of architecture, but there was also a fashion designer doing the lights and a fabric pattern designer doing surfaces, and um, it was just an amazing experience, just incredibly enjoyable, uh, quite challenging. I think there's this kind of I, I went from feeling like, oh my, we went to control everything to realizing that actually I was quite comfortable eventually not controlling things and giving other creatives cues for how their work might work within a, a kind of framework of ideas. And, and in the end, it, you know, it worked. And it, I, I perhaps from that realized that I'd gained so much from that experience that was to do with working with other people and um, understanding how to what what was what was necessary from us to make the whole thing hang together 
but then how much we could allow other people just to contribute their best ideas. It sounds like teaching was being used almost as like an entrepreneurial vehicle to mobilize different areas of expertise and possible um, clients, idols, or mentors, you know, bringing all these forces together yeah. in order to achieve something. Yeah. Was teaching always about that for you? And um, if so, like, why don't you teach anymore? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it became, I think teaching was, it was about that. And it became even more, I mean, it became instrumentalized in similar but different ways to the point by the, by the last years of us teaching I required every student to have 10 clients and um, the last project we did was you know co-housing where the students had to go and find 10 clients there had to be 10 people in their lives that they believed would benefit from a project like this so what started started out as perhaps you know we take the flash example um, here's an example of how to work which is not only to go and find work, but it's to try to work with people who feel like they are um, innovating within their own worlds, so like Pablo and David, and um, bringing them together with lots of other people that uh, perhaps have, you know, like Herman Czech, having an understanding of the history of restaurant design, so these very entrepreneurial London restaurateurs, Introducing them to students at the time, someone that really understands the history of the Viennese cafe house, uh, coffee house, and um, that that is one. It's a kind of kind of lesson in a way of working. It's two. It's, it's almost like generating. You, know, you can now use these ideas and carve out some kind of space in which to work in the way that we were trying to do. And then eventually, that there shouldn't really be any boundary between what you're doing at school and what you're doing uh, afterwards. I mean, I, I'm sure that would sound anathema to, to many educators. And I guess I'm not trying to say that you, know, you, you should create the constraints of the world within uh, the academy. Um, Quite the opposite. Perhaps one can be very selective about those bits of the outside world that you bring into the academy, and then one can dream the kind of possibilities, but that, that those should be models for practice, and that you might be able to change the world of practice through the model that you kind of begin to craft at school. So, yeah. I, I would, I mean, quite a few of the students that um, were involved in, my, in that unit have gone on to work in quite entrepreneurial areas of practice. And so why the decision then? I went to stop teaching. Yeah. Um, I, I think I always, I always believed that I would be happier as an architect that made projects if it had to be to the exclusion of teaching, and I became a teacher that was able to invest myself wholly in teaching to the exclusion of practice. 
and it began to become clear to me that that may not be the the, the choice may not be that stark, but that if I really wanted the practice to work, I had to kind of kind of focus on it, and that did have a big impact on the practice certainly. Um, but I do, you know, I would love to teach. Um, and I mean, I'm going, you know, in September I'm teaching for a week in Girona. Um, I'm invited by Camps Philippe's, the architects. And so I, you know, I am still very involved in education. I was external examining at Cambridge and the AA this summer, which is fascinating. Um, I guess the prospect of teaching two days every week and running a practice is pretty daunting. And I'm just in awe of, you know, some of my peers that actually put it off. Mm. You mentioned that you don't have a business partner. Yeah. And I wonder um, how conscious a decision that was in setting up the practice that you would be the name on the door and that the practice would be representative of to a certain extent, an individual um, and his ideas. Um, and I guess another thing that uh, I want to tie into that question is um, a question about control. Mm. Um, and you know, you're saying that uh, part of the reason to step away from certain extra curricular um, yeah. commitments is to focus more on the practice and I guess to a certain extent to see it grow. Yeah. Um, I can imagine that an inherent challenge in the growth of a practice, especially one led by a kind of singular uh, vision to a certain extent, is this problem of control mm. and how to know when to relinquish some of it. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I don't. I don't. I mean, at the time that I was setting up, I didn't. In in the years up to leading up to it, I didn't think like you know I want to do my own thing. I did think about I want to have some autonomy and imagine that would be with other people. That there were friends that we talked a lot about it, and in the end, you know, waiting for other people to get their act together, I just thought, well, I'll just get on with it. And, um, you know, there was this idea with one friend who now has a successful practice of his own as well that, you know, I'll, be, I'll join you in a few years. But, you know, as soon as I kind of like managed to survive the first year... Um, Can you tell me who that friend was? I'm no, I curious. No, 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 no. He <laughs> probably wouldn't thank me. Um, and, but... After, you know, surviving, and I think it did feel like survival. I, mean, I, I think setting up a practice, it depends on your, your kind of mindset. I found it very challenging. But to have got to a certain point, um, you know, struggled a lot and feel like actually there's a job, I'm finishing a job, there's, you know, I've got a project here, you know, it's worked out, people, are, my client's happy, I got paid, you know, I, I, I really like the results. You. I think at that point, I began to feel like um, this is incredibly gratifying and satisfying, and um, I didn't feel like I just enjoyed it 
to the point where I didn't feel like I needed to change it. Um, now, you know, we've been doing this for 12 years. I think absolutely that there is a question of, I, I do, you know, I do feel like we could work on more projects. We could work on the design of more things and that um, the way that we're trying to do that is by um, maybe to go back to that sterling anecdote about an office in which there are lots of designers who I trust and have you know, great belief in and that they're given a certain autonomy but it's for parts of things and that I retain a kind of role in kind of uh, maintaining the conversation between the parts so that it kind of comes together at some point. And I guess this this challenge of like control also applies to um, the building itself or the mm. project itself as opposed to your colleagues and yeah. um, you know the coexistence of subjectivities within an office. Mm. It's also like um, the challenge of being able to see everything in a project at once. And I just wonder what it's been like for you, having come from a place where you're looking at and, and kind of falling in love with the most detailed aspects of architecture, mm. the niches, mm. the banquette seating, yeah. the etiquette. Yeah. Um, and now the projects are kind of edging more towards an urban scale. Yeah. Uh, I can't imagine that's an easy jump to make. Yeah, I mean, I think a few years ago, I tried to kind of preempt this situation by actually setting about trying to write down how would one make bigger buildings with this kind of architectural approach. I kind of flirted with the idea of doing a PhD. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it was very much flirting. I don't think I didn't get very far. Um, but the idea was that you know, out of an anxiety of how one scales from, say, Caliavino to a kind of city block, um, that this would need a lot of preparation. Inevitably, I got. I kind of. I just couldn't. I couldn't focus enough on the writing because doing the office was just so absorbing. And then eventually it happened because we then won several larger commissions that meant that you know, we were just forced to experiment. And um, I, I would like to think that projects like um, the Quad at New College or the apartment building in uh, Berlin, in Lutzufa, um, do have that kind of um, nested feel in which there are both you know, urban spaces that have strong form that kind of hold you within 
a kind of certain relationship between buildings, between the city as it was and this new intervention. And quite deliberately, you know, I mean, New College, there literally are, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of in a place where niches are quite common. You know, there are niches for, fi I mean, there literally are niches for figures. And um, there are plenty of bonquettes and little moments to pause and um, so um, I think it is I think it is possible to realize this um, kind of architecture that's an agglomeration of different scales each of which is expected to perform a social function um, and I think the discipline is it's maybe in the end quite straightforward you have to be sufficiently disciplined to deliver at every one of those scales as the project grows and that has to be something that you fight for that you have to be an advocate with your clients with your design teams for an art an architecture in which these all of these scales are represented um, and I suppose you know other architects are fighting for other things and it's just you know, what is at stake and I guess you kind of pick you have to pick your battles you can't you know probably our projects are not excelling in other ways um, but in the things that are that we've kind of identified as having emerged within the work as being important, like this kind of idea of a range of spaces from the intimate to the to the civic, and them all having a kind of necessary part to play. Um, that then, in the end, that's what we kind of advocate for. David, thanks so much for your time. <laughs>
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.